Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of June 8th, 2020. On this week's episode, we will be joined by Keenan Lamb, the senior Major League Baseball draft writer for Baseball Prospectus to preview this week's Major League Baseball draft. We go through the exercise of which players most likely won't be available to the White Sox at pick 11 and parse through who will be to get a good idea of whose name could be called by the White Sox on Wednesday night. Speaking of the draft, this is a good time to remind you that we'll have the Sox Machine Draft Show for this upcoming Wednesday, June 10th to cover the White Sox first round pick. Other than draft talk, we'll answer your questions at the end of the show in P.O. Sox and try to answer the question if there will be a season in 2020. Joining me now is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. I guess we can start with our bi-weekly status check. Mm-hmm. How are you and the family doing? Uh, doing okay personally, I I think, you know, in the greater scheme of things, it's, uh, you know, weird and unsettling and very easy to get distracted and, you know, think about other things and, and, you know, constantly refresh the Twitter feed and see a fresh horror uh, upon your eyes. So it's not great. How about you? Yeah, that's kind of how I've been feeling as well. Uh, for the first time in my life, I was part of a protest in the Lincoln Square neighborhood in Chicago uh, for the events that have transpired uh, since the death of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. And just to see this violence continue, 
has been heartbreaking for me. I, I broke when I saw Laquan McDonald video, and that was years ago. That 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 broke me, and I still haven't recovered. And I I and this is I I'm as one of the whitest people you'll ever meet. I am very basic, mm-hmm. and I I don't know how to relate to black people who have to deal with this every single day. But my heart goes out to them. And even though it's a predominantly white neighborhood in Chicago, I felt like I just needed to go out there and show my support on just how upset I am with what is happening everywhere in the country. And it looks like everywhere in the world and I still feel like Laquan McDonald's death is still a fresh wound for the city of Chicago. And looking at the rapid reactions from sports teams and the leagues itself, you know, everyone's promising to be better, right? They, they've all put out those as far as Twitter messages and Instagram posts and additional posts on Facebook on, on how they're going to. They're going to be better and calling out the senseless death of George Floyd. And it's just been a really eye-opening experience for me because I'm paying more attention to the players lately. Like the stories that Tory Hunter shared about mm-hmm. how the police pretty much broke into his home and put a gun to his head. And the officer didn't believe that he was actually Tory Hunter and when he found out that it was actually Tory Hunter to have the nerve to ask for Angels tickets and why Tory Hunter always had a no trade clause to the Boston Red Sox. And uh, Cincinnati Reds first baseman Joey Votto, he wrote an op-ed for Cincinnati.com called My Awakening. I can relate to what Joey Votto wrote as a white man because a lot of the things that he wrote and how I feel right now uh, – uh, that that is very relatable to me, and Lucas Giolito of the White Sox has been very vocal about the recent events and the death of George Floyd. Uh, his his quote is that this is not a political issue; it's a human rights issue, and people's eyes are starting to open, including himself, and really wanting to see them si- themselves on the right side of history and be advocates for positive change. And for the White Sox, Jim. Really, all they have done is they released a Martin Luther King quote on the Twitter and Facebook feeds, which to me is empty. Uh, And that was when the protesting began. They did have an arranged event uh, with several players wearing orange this past Friday to seeking to end gun violence. Obviously very prevalent to those that live in Chicago and especially Tim Anderson, who lost his best friend in 2017 due to gun violence. But other than that, the White Sox haven't been making promises to do more. They are the franchise that supports Amateur City Elite, which gives inner-city kids the chance to learn and develop their baseball skills. Ed Howard, most likely a first-round pick this upcoming Wednesday, comes from this program. And we know that White Sox Charities does a fantastic job supporting many Southside groups to try to make life better for those who live in the nearby neighborhoods. However, what's being protested and people voicing their complaints is violence coming from the police. 
and the White Sox have not spoken out against that type of violence. The Illinois National Guard was called into Chicago, escalating the situation when the looting began after the first wave of protests, and they staged their equipment at the guaranteed rate field parking lots. So if you go to the White Sox Stadium, you're going to see a bunch of Humvees and military gear. And just a few blocks away from the stadium on 31st and Halstead, you got bat-wielding vigilantes who are mostly white chasing protesters away. Reminding, you know, many um, black journalists in Chicago who grew up near Bridgeport by attending De La Salle High School on uh, why Bridgeport is a sunset neighborhood for them. It's not safe for black people to be alone at night. This is just a few blocks away from where the White Sox play. And, you know, they're highlighting the history of deep racism in the White Sox own backyard. Have the White Sox called that behavior wrong publicly and forward to end? No. And that's been a bit surprising for an organization that features prominently black ball players in their history, like Minnie Minoso and Frank Thomas and currently like Tim Anderson. So going through all this and again, our responsibility to talk about the White Sox, I just I feel a great sense of disappointment in them, Jim, because it really appears they're just going to have Lucas Giolito and Tim Anderson do a lot of the heavy lifting for them. And I expect more from this franchise that so often does great things for the Southside community. But when the community needs them the most right now, they're sitting quietly. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've been writing about this today on and off, just penning down, typing down, writing notes, just trying to sort out my thoughts because it is, you know, as you mentioned, uh, a mixed bag. You know, they, they do a lot of great work. They are, you know, among the... Yeah, probably at the forefront of teams uh, focused on diversity. You have Kenny Williams, who has you know very often spoke, uh, um, you know, in, in great detail about uh, you know ingrained racism and intentional and institutional unintentional racism that uh, just kind of permeates everything and, and makes uh, front offices and a lot of levels of baseball look very much the same. So you know they they have that going for them. And as you mentioned, you know Bridgeport, very police heavy. Uh, neighborhood. You know, it's a, kind of a a cradle of power and authorities. You have the police force, you have the fire department, you have the uh, uh, the dailies are from there. Just it seems like it's, you know, throughout the years and decades, it's been, you know, majority white's gotten more diverse, but still I think it's like 2.5% African-American. Uh, you know, and the Dan Ryan splits it off from Bronzeville, which is majority black. And, uh, you know, it's just had this uh, reputation of being just where the where the police officers live, where the fire department lives. And the White Sox have the annual police and fire night. They have the game at the stadium where the police department and fire department play. So I think, you know, the that's their people too. And it seems like the White Sox either, you know, the, the way I'm looking at it is just that they don't want to offend either core constituency. So they're just more or less waiting for it to play itself out, you know, feeling like they don't have to you know, make a statement. Or, you know, it's maybe this unusual thing where, uh, Jerry Reinsdorf really doesn't comment on anything White Sox related to local media or uh, you know, anybody besides Bob Nightingale, really. So you have, you know, that kind of absentee ownership in that regard. And the next guy up is Kenny Williams, who is African-American. And, you know, maybe, you know, it, it's unfair to, for him uh, to have to be the one who goes out and says, you know, the, uh, you know, we're disappointed in uh, you know, the way, the, you know, 
the police have uh, you know engaged in excessive force and and you know a responsibility for the deaths of you know, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so forth. You're just going you know on and down the list, and you know maybe it's unfair for him to be the guy who speaks, and then you know, by that point you're in the third in command and just gets weird. But it is strange that you know Tim Anderson took these photos of him in front of various. Uh, you know, street art, uh, graffiti, looting, you know, some being very anti-police. And, you know, he's not making necessarily a comment on it. You know, he, he, the way he's framed it is that he's more or less just showing he's a part of the city and this is some of the city sentiments. Um, You know, fans have taken it uh, either, you know, pro-Anderson or anti-Anderson is that this is, those are his opinions. Um, but either way, it's a, a form of expression and, you know, the team isn't really, you know, Lucas Giolito is out there with him. Uh, maybe not to that degree, but he is, he has named the police. He has said that he supports Anderson, Anderson that knows that Giolito has his back, but nobody is really out there with him. And, you know, maybe players aren't the best equipped to do, uh, do that. I mean, you know, we, we, you mentioned Joey Votto and his, you know, terrific, uh, op-ed piece and his, you know, his perspective, uh, column about uh, you know just his awakening, but when it comes to others, you know maybe they're just not the type to put those feelings into words. Maybe they're just more listening than you know feeling like they can speak, or maybe they're just largely still ambivalent about it. But uh, it really comes down to the leadership and you know management and ownership, and uh, you know right now the way the White Sox are run, uh, it seems like there is a bit of a void there to where you know, you have. Uh, uh, the fruit snack gushers making a bolder statement than the White Sox have made, and even gushers didn't do that good of a job. Yeah, where the standard is Ben and Jerry's, yeah. right? Ben and Ben and Jerry's is the is right now the standard for corporate brands on a response to as far as the issue, and they're going to be releasing a new ice cream flavor, where where proceeds will go help communities to continue the fight and continue to promote Black Lives Matter. You know, maybe it is that the White Sox don't share that same feeling. They are the stadium that hosts the Chicago Fire versus the Chicago Police Department baseball game. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm sure they don't want to jeopardize in losing that because if they say something against the police, they will most definitely lose that game. You know, on Monday, there's going to be a lot of Chicago sports blogs that are going to be posting an open letter requesting that the franchises in Chicago publicly support demands for change in Chicago's police activity via video. I don't expect the White Sox to change course. But, and I I am tired of like having to scold the team in order to little influence them to make the right decisions on the field, but off the field here, at the very least, I would like them to address what is going on in Bridgeport. Because to me, that is unacceptable. And someone within that franchise needs to call out this activity and squash it because there's really no need for black people to not feel safe being alone blocks away from guaranteed rate field when the perception is me being a white guy taking the red line from the north side to the south side to attend a game by myself i am at huge risk quote unquote because of all the violence in the south side and i have never felt that way ever in the years that i have lived in chicago 
But that was a very eye-opening experience for me hearing these stories that it is not the same for black people on the South Side. And we, as far as everyone that's a White Sox fan, we need to call this out and we need to we need to squash this type of racism. We do not need this within our fan base. And I do want to give a shout out to our friends from the 108. They are doing a great thing in which they are donating $108 to various causes right now uh, to try to do their little part. And I think that is a that is a, a great way to lead uh, for all of us that are White Sox fans to to help out the organizations in the South Side that have to deal with this on a daily basis because today we are angry and today we are protesting. A week, two weeks from now, there may be something else that we're upset about or something else that has our attention. And this may go to the wayside for many of us, but it will not for the black community. And we still need to help support them. Um, we, we just need to be better in, in that regard. Now, speaking of disappointing, so going from current events, let's bring it back to baseball. As many of those that are listening to the show want to hear about baseball talk. And uh, I can't say this gets any better. The topic of will major league baseball return for the 2020 season. And two weeks ago, we talked about what the proposal was, an 82-game proposal, and that the Players Association countered with a 114-game proposal, and that got shot down by the owners. And what we have all learned in the baseball community is that somewhere in the fine line or the fine print, Jim, Commissioner Rob Manfred has the power to start a 50-game season without needing the Players Association approval. How grand that is. So if we get a season, it's most likely 50 games. Well, over the weekend, Bradford William Davis for the New York Daily News had a report that many city health departments are waiting for a final proposal from Major League Baseball on how the league is going to handle COVID-19 for the Major League teams. And three departments, Cobb County, that will work with the Atlanta Braves, Detroit, and Minneapolis, haven't heard from Major League Baseball at all regarding safety protocols when uh, action is supposed to be returning in 2020. And both the states of Florida and Texas are seeing the largest number of confirmed cases since the coronavirus outbreak began this week. We have spent so much time, Jim, this past month discussing the financials of the game and how that's going to influence if baseball returns in 2020. Is it time to bring back health and safety being the number one most important aspect in order for baseball to return this year? Yeah, I mean, you know, given that I'm uh, I'm married to an epidemiologist, it's always been kind of uh, front of mind to me is the, the health parts and why I haven't really gotten my hopes up for a season that's going to feel satisfying. I mean, I'm I'm for baseball coming back. I'm for them giving it a try. You know, you might have some ramp up periods, and then like all of a sudden, 20 weeks in, there's an outbreak among teams, and they have to shut the league down, and it doesn't work out. And uh, yeah, hopefully, you know, assuming players deal with it okay and you know come back recover fully then it's really just 
uh, you know, no ultimate harm aside from just a weird season ramp ups and, and everybody feeling incomplete. But the health thing has always been a big question for me. You know, we've talked about it, how it's going to be affecting different parts of the country and different timelines. And, you know, we talked about, you know, way back when they were discussing the Arizona plan and the, you know, the, the Cactus League and Grapefruit League plans, and then the three city hubs and, you know, not knowing if, Either these places were, you know, either these places or any of these places when you had three of them were going to have flare-ups. It's just as like, you know, places like New York and maybe Chicago and other cities that were hit hard early on are starting to come out of it. So it's always been very complicated. And, and you know, I think baseball has a problem when it comes to being compared to other sports who, uh, you know, don't have to try to get a whole season in. You know, like NBA and NHL, they can just kind of run this mini tournament in you know a city you know just pick a location run through the game see if you can get through it if not you know it doesn't work out but you know either way you have most of a season that's already taken shape you know who the playoff teams are uh it's going to be weird but they've had like a, a real season with baseball you have to try to get a season start to finish and however many games you can do it and it's just going to be weird all the way around so um you know i've heard reporters and fans talking about how if baseball doesn't come back and all the other sports comes back comes back it's gonna be a black eye for the sport you're gonna have fans alienated not coming back and for me who i've mainly been focusing more on the health part than the uh i guess the health uh, logistics more than you know the the financial details i've just been wondering like it just seems really hard to get a full season in and you know if it's you know if they if they squabble over the season but uh, the lost season helps them avoid bigger complications after, you know, either during 2021 or after 2021. Uh, it'll be worth it and it'll be, uh, you know, this season won't be that great of a loss. So I guess that's been my attitude all along. And uh, yeah, it could be, uh, you know, the, yeah, the, the health flare-ups still have a chance, even though, um, you know, a, a lot of uh, areas are on the downswing or maybe people have just gotten fatigued from being vigilant and are starting to ease up because they haven't seen consequences themselves but it seems like uh, this could flare back up and it could be you know 1a and the financials could be 1b rather than vice versa yeah chicago is going to start opening up you're going to see videos and pictures of all the restaurants in the city now having patio dining so you'll be sitting outside and it's summertime in Chicago. It is a great time to be outside. So I think Chicago may run into another bit of an outbreak here. But, you know, you mentioned the NBA. I mean, Adam Silver, you got to be looking at these numbers coming out of Florida and questioning, is Orlando really the best option for us right now? Uh, Texas wants to have stadiums at 50% capacity. Yeah. I mean, Major League Baseball, are you comfortable with that? Are you, are you sure you're comfortable with that? Because the numbers are not lying. There had, both these states that went back to normal, quote-unquote, a month ago are now he, seeing huge spikes, spikes that they weren't even seen when the outbreak first began. So keep an eye on what's going on in Florida and Texas when it comes to the coronavirus updates right now. Um, but... As far as the health, what was proposed to the Players Association doesn't seem that it was truly vetted by the league. They haven't spoke to every single city health official that will be responsible working with the local teams when it comes to the coronavirus testing and reporting. 
It just it just seems really half-assed by, by Major League Baseball on the health part. And then you combine it with not willing to negotiate fairly with the Players Association. That This is just – this is a powder keg now, Jim. Like even if you go forward with this season, it could, I think, only end in disaster. Maybe except for one fan base that gets to brag that their team won the World Series – but for everyone else, this could really blow up in baseball's faces. And it may have a lasting impact going to 2021. Yeah, it's really the uh, yeah, just a, a confluence of factors kind of all coming together. And uh, it, the one thing I, I guess I take the, um, the league side on is the number of games, like 114 and pushing the season late October, November. That seems like playing with fire especially if you have another you know if it's a seasonal um if there's a seasonal cycle to it and you have a a rise in cases as uh, the fall comes in uh teaming up with flu season you know that seems like it really uh could be another stress point on healthcare systems and so i understand why the league wants to keep it you know more compact than that and have uh you know 82 games originally was their proposal and that seems to make more sense 114 seems to be um, a little bit uh, cavalier based on, you know, how they said that they were, you know, basically taking all the risks and putting lives on the line. And uh, Ken Rosenthal, I think it was Ken Rosenthal, was The Athletic definitely had an article talking about like older managers, especially managers like Dave Roberts, who had a cancer case, uh, Ron Gardenheider, who, was ca- uh, Ron Gardenheider, who has cancer. And I think uh, he's type one. And, uh, you know, these uh, managers who are you know in the age range where they're higher risk and have some health conditions where that makes them in this high risk group and all the things that they may or may not be able to do and you know there are a lot of uh, you know loose ends here especially when you're trying to you know help players ramp up to get into game shape like you're talking about like you know guys hitting fungos and you know grounders at the infield and still doing you know drills in spring training. Uh, just a lot of moving parts that other leagues don't have to deal with. So, uh, you know, that's, they, they, they have, uh, you know, the health concerns, they have the players aren't entirely prepared for the season. You know, they, they weren't already in midseason form, just have a lot of, uh, you know, whether it's comparisons or whether it's been, you know, uh, financials or, and then you have the players, you know, who just keep saying that, uh, you know, they can't trust what the owners are saying until they open the books. And that's absolutely true. It's uh, just seems like a lot of uh, unresolvable issues, both within and uh, out of the control of the two sides. And, yeah, I, I take your stance, too, that it seems like the league has a lot more to show than the players do. Uh, just really when it comes to trying to address the whole thing, I think really 80 games or fewer seems like the way to go. And I agree with you on that. I do. I The 114 games was not going to happen. And the reason they pitched the 114 games is that they want to get more of their money that was due to them that they thought that they were going to make before coronavirus shut everything down. So I, I'm with you that the 114 games was not going to fly and that 82 games is, is probably a good amount, but it just seems like Major League Baseball only wants to pay for 50 games. It doesn't matter how many games yeah. the players want to play beyond 50. You're only going to get paid 50 games. Don't even think about deferment because you're not going to get them. Yeah, the thing about the the 50 games, too, is you know, when, the, when that was mentioned, it seemed to change the math for me in that you know when you have these players taking cuts upon you know what was already agreed from just the simple prorating of their salaries, you know, if Mike Trout is going to play 82 games under the league's proposal, but get paid for like the equivalent of 25 of them. 
why wouldn't he just wait for 50 games? You know, like for you know a good chunk of the league, they're going to be, you know, 50, <laughs> playing only 50 games is going to make a lot more financial sense. And, you know, with the league sliding pay scale of, of trying to have like, you know, basically tax brackets for players based on what they're earning, you know, it does make sense in some ways, but it's also kind of a a naked attempt to try to cleave the union in two camps, uh, lower earners versus higher earners. And that seems, uh, you know, underhanded or, you know, an, an act of aggression. <laughs> I can see the union taking it as that. So, yeah, there's just a lot of, uh, you know, negotiation that is maybe not out and out bad faith, but not good faith. <laughs> there's there's reasons to question the motives and uh, it's just going to be messy. And, you know, labor and negotiations, good ones should be kind of messy because, you uh, you know, if it's too easy, then one side caves and, uh, you know, they're not doing their you know, due diligence to make sure that, um, you know, especially on the labor side, the last couple negotiation rounds, they've uh, given away a bit too much, which is, you know, raised the stakes for this round. But, yeah, we should allow it to be sloppy. But at this point, you know, we haven't seen a whole lot of movement or even willingness to consider movements. And when you throw the 50 games out there, it just paints a number where, you know, for a good chunk of the league, why would they play more games than they're getting paid for if they just may as well get paid for 50? Uh, that right. just seems like simple math to me. Yeah, I I am now fully expecting a 50-game season gym starting in early August, covers all of August and September, and the expanded playoffs will be in October. That's what I'm now expecting. Yeah, you know, if they can agree to expanded playoffs, that's the other thing I'm unclear about is... Uh, well, it seems like I'm, it seems like I understand that the two sides need to agree on expanded playoffs. Um, but I don't know, you know, if, if it gets to the point where they agree to a 50 game season and hostilities are high, is that something where the players don't want to agree to it? Or if the league, uh, is going to try to, um, you know, somehow ram it through in a way that's unfair to players. I, I don't know. It's just, that's what I don't have a good grip on. Right. But it just if, if Rob Manfred has this power as commissioner where he can activate a 50-game season, he's going to activate the 50-game season whether the players like it or not. Like, that's why we will get a season is, is simply because of the fact that the commissioner of baseball suddenly has this option that many were not aware of until this past week. And that's what we'll get. And the season will be over before November, and then we move on to 2021. Yeah, it's going to be, you know, a 50 game season like that played under, uh, played grudgingly. If if it right. comes to that, that's going to be, um, <laughs> like it's going to be. It could be fun for us. It could be miserable to most fans and just like why am i watching why do i care yeah i can't go to games uh players don't want to be there uh it seems like a mandatory yeah it, it seems like homework versus actually like you know competition everybody's invested in uh but it could be you know, the weird byproducts and uh beefs and sniping um you know could be kind of good material for us <laughs> i guess yeah <laughs> didn't think about it uh, as far as in that sense, but yeah, when, when this happens, not if I'm going to go with when, when this happens, we'll obviously shift as far as how this show is scheduled and as far as the coverage of that 50 game season. Um, but 
Again, stay tuned to SoxMachine.com as we will provide you guys with the latest updates on what will be happening with Major League Baseball returning in 2020. But it is draft week this week for Major League Baseball. And after the break, join us will be senior Major League Baseball draft writer for Baseball Prospectus. Keenan Lamb will be joining us to preview what to expect next on the Sox Machine Podcast. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Listen, you hear that? That's the sound of nothing. And nothing is what you'll pay for medium fries when you buy any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich. It's crispy, juicy, tender, all-white meat chicken with crinkle-cut pickles on a buttery potato bun. Mmm! Buy one, and we'll hook you up with a free medium fries. That's like zero zilch zip. So try any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich and get a medium fries. For nothing. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. When you rely on the internet for everything... You need speed that can handle anything. And now, Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on Internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible x gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. It is draft week for Major League Baseball. Typically, we are talking about the season being almost halfway over for Major League Baseball, college baseball wrapping up regionals, leading to the draft event. Instead, in 2020, the draft will be the first official event for Major League Baseball, and that sounds really weird saying that out loud. But for this draft, who are the players that could be available for the White Sox to pick at number 11? I know this is with a lot of interest for White Sox fans. And to help us narrow down the field, joining us for the first time on the Sox Machine podcast is senior Major League Baseball draft writer and amateur scouting coordinator for Baseball Prospectus. It's Keenan Lamb. And hello, Keenan. Thanks for taking the time to join our show. Thank you very much, Josh. I'm happy to be here. So how has it been for you trying to prepare for this year's draft? Um, It has been very different, uh, especially because uh, I was brought in um, with this official title with Baseball Prospectus for the first time this year. Um, Would really just been doing things on my own on kind of a um, as I saw fit basis for the last couple of years. And, you know, was very ready to just hit the ground running. I had my schedule lined up. Uh, the calendar was full. I was excited to see as much as I possibly could leading up to June 10th. And things went sideways, as you know, most of life did in general. So um, my my preparation for the draft has been a lot more time at the computer and watching as much video as possible. Um, which I, I do have a fair amount of experience doing already. So I, I do prefer the in person. Uh, experience over the video, but you got to do what you got to do, right? Yeah, I have logged a lot of hours on YouTube Mm -hmm. trying to see as many people as possible Uh, because when people do ask, hey, how about this guy? I can say, yes, I have seen them for 90 seconds because Mm -hmm. that's all the video that is available uh, on YouTube. But yeah, it it is odd as far as preparing for this draft 
you know, when you speak to others and, and as far as other scouts and such, you know, this is one of those first times where I feel Keenan that everyone's in the same boat, right? You know, major league baseball teams, they have, you know, some teams have a lot of scouts that they send all across the country. And there are some teams like the Houston Astros that have very few scouts and they rely heavily as far as with TrackMan uh, analytics or, or metrics to help with their decision making. And we have very little of that. How do you think that's going to impact on how teams operate on Wednesday and Thursday when it comes to the draft? Right. It's an interesting question because from a scouting standpoint, yes, your your sentiment is correct. All the teams basically are on a pretty even footing just because there's only so much uh, work that was being done during this spring season. And there wasn't any sort of expectation that things were going to stop. So if you felt that, oh, you know, I'm not going to be able to make it to, you know, some high school game, you know, on a Tuesday, you just would kind of kick that can down the road. Oh, I'll get them you know, the next time around. Well, you know, people's plans obviously got ripped up that way. So really, every scouting department is doing what we already just talked about. There's doing a lot of monitoring of social media, YouTube. Um, there's a scouting coordinator I know who was using uh, Instagram to try and stop and start whether, you know, a pitcher's plant foot was getting down at a certain time at release. So when when you're getting to that level of uh, analysis, you know, looking at stopping and starting a uh, Instagram video, you know, guys are just trying to do as best they can. But as far as the scouting aspect goes with it being level, it's very different across the teams because there are so many different strategies that can be employed in this draft. Some teams are going to be playing it extra safe with guys that they have long track records with that maybe they saw, you know, as freshmen in college and they've seen them sophomore and junior years. And then there's other teams that are going to be maybe more cost conscientious because there are some teams out there that are actually worried about some of the money that they're worried about giving out, even with deferred signing bonuses. And we can talk about that later, but it's, it's going to be a crapshoot out there, and, and and anybody's guess as to what happened is purely purely theoretical at this point. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel too. I mean, you have so many experts, right, with doing the mock drafts. Uh, even our really good friend Jim Callis, you know, we've had him on over the years, and he's been doing this. It seems like longer than anyone, and. You know, even speaking with him, he's a little bit unsure. And it's like, if Jim Callis is unsure, then I don't know if anybody knows what's going on um, as far as where guys could possibly land. But what I'd like to do is kind of work through the first 10 picks here, Keenan, just to kind of help as far as our listeners who are White Sox fans try to gauge on who is most likely going to be available for the White Sox at pick 11. So let's start with the guys that most likely will not be available to them pick 11 and those are the guys on the top of your draft board and you are writing as far as profiles on your as far as the top 10 guys in-depth profiles on baseball prospectus and you could go on baseball prospectus and see Keenan's top 30 who is number one on your draft board well you're gonna have to find out uh, next week it'll actually be coming out uh, uh, on the day of the draft um, so three two and one will be coming out Monday Tuesday and Wednesday um, counting down the, the last three that are in our top 30. But what I can tell you, it's pretty much industry standard who the top, I would say, five or six guys are. And, okay. and then what the order ends up happening is going to be completely, you know, <laughs> throw a dart at a dartboard kind of a game. So 
Um, Spencer Torkelson is kind of the presumptive favorite to go number one uh, for the Tigers. Um, big right-handed you know, slugger out of Arizona State. Uh, he's pretty much a safe pick, as you, if you want to call it a safe pick, at 1-1. Um, Austin Martin is a very talented athlete out of Vanderbilt. Uh, he was also being in talks for being the, the first overall pick. And, and even a third one who could be an outside shot would be a left-handed pitcher out of Texas A&M, Asa Lacey. Three really strong college competitors there that they're all, you know, if you want to rearrange them in any order, depending on your preferences, you know, scouting departments are going to do that because there is no clear cut one, one candidate this year. Like you would have had even as recently as last year with Adley Rushman. So you got their top three, uh, another kind of second tier of the top tier, if you will. Uh, Nick Gonzalez at a New Mexico state, uh, who's a, a second baseman, shortstop, probably plays second baseman um, when he gets uh, up in the minors and hopefully eventually into the pro game. And then uh, Emerson Hancock, a right-handed pitcher out of Georgia, a big, strong uh, strike thrower, uh, was very good in the SEC. He's a very uh, safe pick, I would call it, um, as far as you know, top 10 right uh, pitchers can go. And then you kind of start seeing a little bit of a difference as to what depending on if you're talking to a scout in the top 10, a scout outside the top 10, and then what some other industry uh, analysts like Jim Callis would say, there's kind of this inflection point around six or seven where you have Zach Veen, who is the uh, kind of the unanimous top high school prospect in this year's draft. Uh, he's likely to go somewhere also in that top five to six prospects. And then you have Heston Kierstead, uh, outfielder um, out of Arkansas, who's just destroyed SEC pitching for three years. Um, he's a very interesting prospect with a high offensive profile. Uh, Max Meyer, the uh, right-handed hurler out of Minnesota, he's next for me at number eight. Uh, um, he was number seven. In, or, no, I had it right. Yeah, Max Meyer, he's number eight on my draft board. Fastball reaching 100 miles an hour, slider probably the best pitch in the draft. He's got some nasty stuff, but also some concerns whether he's going to be a full-time starter moving forward. Um, I have the first uh, high school pitcher on my board at number nine, Mick Abel um, out of Oregon. Uh, he's a high school thrower who's got really advanced stuff for his age and a very uh, um, projectable body given his current size, which is already 6'6", 200 pounds, there's a lot of belief that he can turn into just an absolute machine. And then we start talking into these players that could be factoring in here uh, for the White Sox. Anybody really past Zach Veen that I mentioned, Meyer, um, Abel, Kierstead, and then the next two pitchers who are both lefties, Garrett Crochet uh, out of Tennessee, and then Reed Detmers out of Louisville, those are kind of like the five top of my board prospects that are all legitimate possibilities for the White Sox at 11. And uh, there's a, all obviously a lot um, beyond that, that, you know, they could go up and, and take somebody who's a little bit farther down on my prospect board. But uh, it's a very interesting place to be in that, that inflection point between like pick number seven and pick number 15. There could go so many different ways. Now, as far as the college pitchers, the assumption is, is especially as far as the top 10 picks that, you know, for about a month now, it's been written often that we could see a mad rush as far as the teams, of the top 10 trying to, 
get the college pitchers early. Do you foresee that happening as far as the first few picks of this draft where teams are going to, you know, after as far as Torkelson and Austin Martin, that we could see a bunch of college pitchers drafted in a row? I think there's kind of a, I would say a leveling off. You have this this kind of top um, tier of college pitching that does exist um, beyond Crochet and, and uh, Detmers. Uh, you do have Kate Cavalli, who's at Oklahoma, Cole Wilcox at Georgia, uh, Bryce Jar- Jarvis at Duke, and a number of other pitchers. But they all kind of turn into this amorphous blob where you're not really sure could they go 10th or 12th or could they go 30th or 40th? There's so much depth at that position. You really don't know. It's really just team preference at that point. And I don't know if you can really say there's going to be a run with teams trying to stock up with these players because in that after that top six of what you would probably call the elite part of the class, really ranking between 7 and 30 or even 7 and 50, Anybody can go anywhere just because of the depth in this class, especially at pitching. So if, if somebody outside of my top 30 goes somehow in the top 20, I'm not going to be surprised hmm. just because there's so many guys that you could perceive to be in that group, depending on your draft board. Got it. So you don't see a huge divide as far as talent, because typically when, like if you had like top 30 college pitchers, you know, one through 15, you may consider first rounders where 15 through 30 are going to be sprinkled in between rounds, second through, you know, through the fourth round. But you think that that gap, that talent gap between the seventh best college pitcher, and the 30th is pretty close. Oh, most definitely. Yeah, I, I think once you get past um, at least on my top 30 draft board, uh, Kate Cavalli um, out of Oklahoma, who is a big right hander with really big stuff uh, up to 99 this spring, uh, big time breaking ball, just a strikeout pitcher and a great frame and athleticism for his size. Uh, there's really kind of like this uh, really, I would call it a bottleneck, a bottlenecking of talent between after him and everyone that you can slide down to that top 50 or 75 players. So it, I think that if you're going to try and convince a team to say, Oh, well we have to get, one of these next level guys here at pick 15 or 20, there's a good chance that that guy can make it into the second round and you don't have to make a reach for him so much. So it's, it's part of the whole wildness of this, of what could end up happening next week um, during the first round, because it could go any number of ways. Now for the high school players, Keenan, they are in a tight spot here, especially with the bonus payout. Again, the most that any of these players are going to make in 2020 is $100,000. And then what's ever remaining of the bonus that they agree upon with their new ball club will be split in half for 2021 and 2022. That's going to be something on the mind as far as with parents or advisors, AKA agents for these high schoolers to decide on what's going to be the price to the, to convince me of foregoing my college commitment and start playing baseball professionally at the ages of either 17, like someone like Nick Bitsko or 18 years old. When you look at as far as his high school class and trying to gather as much Intel as possible, is this a strong high school class or is this a class of players that 
there is the possibility of elite talent, but we may not see so many prep players draft in the first round because the talent doesn't really merit a big payday. Right. It's a good question because it's a lot like the college pitchers, and you can just call it all high school players this year, where you have a couple guys at the top, and then you have a big group of players that could go in the first round or the second round or, you know, who knows. And the reason behind that is because a lot of these players going into this season, you know, especially when, you know, they're appearing at some of these summer showcases last year in 2019, you know, people are talking them up, they're doing interviews, they're thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to be a first round pick, I'm going to get a couple million dollars. And then all of a sudden, you know, this this pandemic happens. A lot of guys aren't getting scouted. Like, you know, there's certain players that didn't even get to their spring schedule whatsoever on their high school teams. And so the analysis uh, that you're seeing through at least some of the industry types uh, talking about prospects here is giving a little bit more of a recency bias towards the guys who did get to play and the guys who didn't and the guys who didn't get to play as much. You're starting to see them not quite go, be able to go up the draft boards where other people are able to leapfrog them. Fair or not fair, that just seems to be the case, unfortunately. So if you're uh, – I'll use an example. Uh, Dylan Cruz, who I had at least after last summer and going into the fall as a better prospect than Zach Veen, who's now you know perceived to be a top six or seven pick – Dylan Cruz uh, announced this past week that he is foregoing the draft and he's going to be uh, attending LSU next year. So at some point he knew that if I'm going to be, you know, in the 30 to 40 range and I'm amongst this big glut of players that it's going to be tough to see you know, where I could end up going. And last year I thought I was going to get a couple million dollars as a top 15 pick. It does make you wonder how many players are going to end up taking that contract and signing on the dotted line. That's where you get into this problem of basically every team past the top two or three at the top of the draft is trying to find places to cut under slot deals because they believe that there's some players, some high school players out there who are going to make it in that comp round, that second round are going to be asking for big, like top 15, top 20 numbers as far as pick values go. And if they don't get that, they're going to just walk in, in a couple years when they're draft eligible once again. We're hoping that, you know, the, the pandemic and everything that's going on with the new draft rules, that that's passed and gone and the new CBA has kicked in hopefully by then. So there'll be a better picture as to what financially they could be getting as a, a draft eligible sophomore or, or becoming a, a draft eligible junior. Now, for the high school players, we did get a couple of fan questions uh, in regards to the high schoolers. As far as the outfielders themselves, you know, we talked about Zach Veen, uh, Robert Hassel uh, is also another talented high school outfielder, Austin Hendrick, and then P. Crow Armstrong. How would you rank those high school outfielders? It's tough to bet against Zach Veen right now at the top. Um, I saw a lot of him actually in the last six months. He's fortunately about an hour's drive for me, so able to catch him uh, quite a bit. And, you know, the hype is real. He's a very good player. He's set up for a lot of success in the future. He just needs to stay the course, fill out that body a little bit. And he's got a great swing. Um, some people call him, uh, you know, Christian Yelich 2.0. I don't know if that's quite what I see. I see like a little bit different player, uh, at least for me. Um, but he's got to be at the top. After that, I do think that Robert Hassel is my second best outfielder among that group. I think he's got the chance to be an above average to plus hitter with plus power. 
Whereas you look at the uh, Austin Hendrick, who has got maybe the best power of any player in this class um, uh, of the high school players. He's got just ridiculous bat speed and, and energy coming off the bat. I just wonder if there's going to be too much swing and miss in his game and if he's going to be a total hit, a complete hitter uh, once he develops and matures. So I have Hendrick going third behind Hassel. And then fourth, Pete Crow Armstrong, I did get to see quite a bit um, last year and the year before at the National High School Invitational in North Carolina. And he's a very good athlete. Um, I wonder if his swing is ever going to allow him to be able to develop much power in his game. I had one scout compare him to Jacoby Ellsbury all the years that he didn't hit home runs. So take out like that one, like MVP season that he had where he hit like 30 home runs for the Red Sox. He's going to be maybe a 10 to 15 home run guy, but a freak athlete in center field, steal a ton of bases, um, be really aggressive uh, on the base pass. So he's a very good player too. Just, it seems like his ceiling maybe isn't as high as some of the other players you listed. Um, but his floor might be a little bit higher than the others, too. Now, you mentioned many players at the White Sox could possibly be looking at pick 11. And over the years, since we've been covering as far as the draft on Sox Machine, you know, starting back with like Carson Fulmer in 2015, and then Zach Collins in 2016, and then Jake Berger in 17, and then Madrigal in 18, and then Vaughn in 2019. Um, you know, obviously, Fulmer was the last pitcher of the White Sox draft in the first round. If you want to count Zach Birdie as a first round pick, as pick 26, sure. Um, but lately, you know, since 2017, you know, it's been position players for the White Sox, college bats in the first round. If they decide to go in that direction and continue that trend, Keenan, is Patrick Bailey, the catcher out of NC State, the best college position player? that you think could be available to the White Sox at pick 11? Well, first of all, I just want to say that looking at the White Sox potential draft picks this year, it is the most fun team to talk about. Really? And the reason for it, it really is because they are in such a desirable place on, on not only just where they fall in the first round, but in their team in general, just the construction of their team. Right. So in, in the baseball world, in the, in baseball drafts, you never pick for what you need. It, it's not like the NFL draft or NBA draft where you say, you know, you know, we already got a center, so let's, you know, pick, you know, a shooting guard or something like that, or we need, you know, more depth at cornerback. The White Sox could actually make a case that they could draft for need because their team is so stacked with future uh, assets that have already been signed long term. You just look at the diamond and across the board, they have their cornerstones locked in except for Andrew Vaughn and Nick Madrigal. And they're still team controlled for many years down the road. So could they take, uh, you know, a college position player again? I mean, they could, they could just take the best player available. That's obviously something that, that the, the normal status quo scouting coordinator would do. However, if they really wanted to get aggressive, they could do one of two things. They could go with more of a project like a high school player, uh, like an Ed Howard, or maybe one of the pitchers like a Nick Bitsko and really try and hit a home run on a high potential kind of pick, knowing that they have several years in this potential championship window that could be opening up for them. Or they could pick for need and go after one of these college pitchers like a Garrett Crochette 
like a, a Cade Cavalli, like a Reed Detmers maybe, if Max Meyer were to fall to them, I would think that they would love to have him on their team just because those are players that could potentially get through the system relatively quickly. And even guys like Crochet and Meyer, you could potentially want to throw them into the bullpen as soon as this year with such a short schedule potentially happening and just teams trying to put all their chips into one basket. Also knowing that there's a future CBA coming up that's going to be uh, acknowledging some of the problems with service time. Teams might just want to, to go all out this, this fall. And if the White Sox really want to get aggressive and think, hey, we have a really, really good team heading into this year and next year, let's get a guy who that can help us as soon as possible, they could go that route. There is the local option that in Chicago you would hear a lot of, and that's shortstop Ed Howard from Mount Carmel High School, uh, real close to Guaranteed Rate Field in the city of Chicago. And there's a lot of White Sox fans that look at the farm system, and I look at it too and say, you know, there's not a lot of middle of the infield depth. I mean, if something were to happen to Tim Anderson, the White Sox would be kind of screwed at shortstop, Uh, even though you did mention that they – you know, they got their cornerstones at a lot of positions, and I know they're going to be counting on Tim Anderson for years to come. But, you know, in the farm system, there isn't that budding shortstop that they're developing right now. What are your thoughts on Ed Howard? And is he someone that could, you know, be selected in the top 15 of this draft because his talent merits that? Right. Coming off of last year's uh, showcase circuit, he was definitely. Uh, solidified as the best uh, infielder in the high school draft class. It's not really much of discussion. He is the top middle infielder and he's very athletic. He's very toolsy. Some might remind him of actually Tim Anderson. Uh, I don't know if he actually has that kind of future uh, power in his game, but uh, very high contact rates, uh, good eye at the plate, smooth swing, um, athletic movements in the field. There's a lot to like about Ed Howard. And he falls into that category of players where if you're the White Sox, you can take your best player available, whether it's the college position player and just add that value to your system. You can go you know, the college pitcher route and hopefully they can get through the system quickly and help the team out as soon as possible. Or because their team, at least presently at the big league level, is so entrenched with all these guys already that you know are going to be there for a long time. Taking a guy like Ed Howard is not a bad idea whatsoever, especially since, you know, you don't have to worry about uh, him having to contribute anytime soon, four, five, six years down the road. So never do you really want to put too much stock in a team trying to draft a local kid just to appease local fans. It just might so work out that he's the guy there that you could uh, find at pick 11. Now, we've gone through a lot of players in this conversation, Keenan. But who is your, let's say, favorite prospect in this draft class? Maybe not the best player available, but a prospect that you are sold on that could exceed our expectations. I think the guy who maybe I'm most high on compared to maybe others who are, are talking about you know the best prospects in this year's draft is Cole Wilcox out of Georgia. And he's a big six foot six, six seven righty who just has unlimited power stuff uh last year when i saw him and unfortunately uh the season got canceled the weekend i was uh, meant to see him this year so i was looking forward to seeing you know what kind of difference were in his game but last year he was throwing 97 to 100 miles an hour with a lot of movement um some sync to it 
he had a, a very nasty slider in the upper 80s, uh, scratching 90 miles per hour with some late depth to it. And then a changeup that was like this bowling ball sinker that there was just no way you were going to be able to get around on it because you thought it was a fastball coming out of the hand. And it had so much depth and late fade to it. I was just very impressed uh, by his stuff last year. I, I would have taken him in the top 10 last year based on his stuff alone. Now, granted, he does have some wildness um, to his game. He, he did uh, walk a fair amount of batters last year. And uh, this year he did dial it back. It looked like uh, reading some reports um, that he was throwing mostly 94 to 96. So not throwing quite as hard with the fastball, but the walks went significantly down this year, his four starts. And he was just dominating players uh, in during the spring season. Just the projectability of his body being uh, able to throw downhill the way he does his stuff. He's one of my favorites in the draft. That I have him at uh, pick, or excuse me, at uh, number sixteen in my top draft prospects. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we're talking about him years later, thinking like, "Wow, he should have been on in the top five. Right. I, I feel like he's going to go to St. Louis, and then he's going to be in the majors in two years, and like win Rookie of the Year. And then everyone's going to be like, why didn't Cole Wilcox go higher? Right. Right. He, that seems like the thing the Cardinals would do. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Like that's destiny, either St. Louis or Atlanta. Like I'm, I'm willing to book it. It's going to be one of those two teams that's going to draft him <laughs> and he's going to be terrific. And then White Sox fans are going to be on me asking how come they didn't draft Cole Wilcox. Uh, mm-hmm. On the flip side, who do you think could slip in this draft and be picked lower than expected? Well, a guy who's had a lot of different takes from really the end of last year, beginning of this spring, and then following uh, the suspension of play at the uh, you know in, in April, was an outfielder for UCLA, Garrett Mitchell, where some scouts were saying he had the best tools of anyone they've seen in the last decade. Just a freak athlete, looked like a, a free safety patrolling center field, um, good contact ability, a plus runner, plus arm. However, for me and for what other people are kind of wondering, too, is if you look at his power numbers over the last three years at UCLA, he's never hit more than a couple home runs. And his swing isn't really uh, tailored for that kind of power production. Um, I actually did some kind of side-by-side analysis, and he has kind of a swing that reminded me a lot of Dustin Ackley. And he, he went number two overall in the draft because of his contact ability and his hitting approach. But he didn't really do a whole lot in the majors for the Mariners and just uh, his career ended up kind of uh, puttering out there. Um, So I wonder, Garrett Mitchell is obviously a much better athlete than Dustin Ackley. Can he employ a swing change to get a little bit more lift out of that swing to get to more of that power? Because he's definitely strong enough to be hitting balls out of the park. There's just some questions about, you know, that ability to do that. And also he is a diabetic. And scouts have been a little reluctant to acknowledge, like, is that something that can be uh, managed throughout an entire 162-game season? Um, only a couple players can have been known to, to be able to take on that challenge. So between those two things, um, I think it's something where there's some, there's some evaluators that will have them in the top 10 as far as best players overall. I personally have dropped him to 20, and he could be go even a little bit lower than that just because of the, the reasons I discussed. Before we let you go, again, it's just a five-round draft in 2020. We did get a question about how will this fifth round look different with being the last round of the draft instead of having 34, 35 more rounds to go. 
that we typically have in the Major League Baseball draft. Keenan, how do you see the fifth round playing out on day two? It's going to be the wild, wild west. It is going to be very strange, I feel like, because you're going to have one of two things happen. You're going to have teams trying desperately to sign players in the earlier rounds to underslot deals to try and get the absolute best players they can and, and throw money that will be above slot. And then the other thing that could happen, too, especially when you get into that bottom half of the fifth round, and I, I understand that the White Sox are more towards the top half. Uh, they're kind of in that middle part of the fifth round. Um, but once you get to that towards the, the last few picks of the draft, you know, you're looking at uh, signing bonuses or I should say sign it, the slot being somewhere in the neighborhood between, you know, 400000 and $325,000. As an undrafted free agent, the max that you can make this year is $20,000 as your signing bonus. That is a huge drop-off. So I wouldn't be surprised if you saw players who are more than deserving to get that full slot, you know, allotment of, say, you know, $400,000. But Team X, you know, with the 150th pick says, hey, you know, we know you want three hundred fifty or $400,000 because that's what the slot says. But, you know, it's either us and you take this $100,000 we're going to offer you or, you know, you run the risk of not getting drafted at all. And then the best you can do is $20,000. That's a big, big difference. And I could see some teams uh, maybe not doing you know, right by the players that way, trying to cut deals in order to save some money. Yeah, I mean, there's already rumors that we're hearing that in the fifth round, some guys may only get offered $50,000 because it's going to be more than 20000 So those teams can save on their draft pool and push it up to rounds in the second and third rounds to maybe sign some of these high school prospects that wouldn't be top 15 players, but teams still covet uh, and still want to try to buy out their college commitments. I I'm with you, Keenan. I don't know what to expect in the fifth round this year uh calling it the wild wild west uh is a good way of describing it and uh it'll be a very interesting way to end the major league baseball draft but you can read keenan's work on baseball prospectus as he's been writing up draft profiles about his top 30 prospects you'll want to go to baseball prospectus on monday tuesday and wednesday on the day of the draft to see who's going to be on his top three as far as the draft prospects and of course follow him on twitter He's at Keenan Lamb. And Keenan, this was an absolute pleasure. Enjoy draft week. I know, again, it's going to be very busy and it's going to be busy the week after as far as recapping the draft. And we're going to look forward to your reaction afterwards on how the draft went as a whole and who the White Sox picked. I really enjoyed it, Josh. Thank you very much. And uh, we look forward to talking again. Coming up next, it's your questions in P.O. Sox. Pop some new cascade in your dishwasher with 50% more cleaning power. 50% more cleaning power. New cascade does it better. 50% more cleaning power. New cascade does it cleaner. Switch to new cascade platinum with 50% more cleaning power. No need to rinse your dishes and it's even strong enough for the quick wash cycle. New cascade platinum. Pop some new cascade in your dishwasher with 50% more cleaning power. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. 
You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter, following us on Twitter at Sox Machine, or helping support the site and show by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash Machine. And before we answer your guys' questions, just again, uh, big thanks to Keenan Lamb, Baseball Perspectives, to join us on the show to talk about the Major League Baseball draft. On Wednesday, we will be streaming live the 2020 Major League Baseball draft show. I will be joined by future Sox's James Fox to help break down as far as the draft picks leading up to the White Sox pick for pick 11. We'll have additional guests along the way. So if you don't want to hear Harold Reynolds try to make comps for all of these draft players, uh, you can listen to us. Uh, We'll have the live stream available at SoxMachine.com or you can listen to us at mixer.com slash socks machine again that will be wednesday night for the first round for the white Sox pick 11 and we'll, we we will be covering picks one through 10 as well before the white Sox make their announcement also on wednesday jim and i will share who we want the white Sox to pick in the first round and you can submit your guesses on the 2020 MLB draft pick them on SoxMachine.com. So I'll give you guys an opportunity as well uh, to submit your mock drafts and how you think the first round will shake out. All right. So, Jim, let's answer some questions in the mailbag here. The first question we have comes from Andrew Siegel. And Andrew's asking, in a 50-game season where each game is essentially three times more important than a regular game, do you make use of expanded rosters to tandem starting pitchers, say Dallas Keuchel for three or four innings, followed by Michael Kopak for three or four innings, and then go to a high leverage reliever? I can see that happening later in the season where you use two guys who would normally start their own games uh, in the same game. Like I can see like you know, as the playoff picture comes into view and and teams know exactly what they're dealing with. And I imagine like the first few weeks of the season are going to be teams figuring out what kind of shape they're in. Yeah. I, you know, when you're looking at this short a season and uh, yeah. um, You know, the, the lack of preparation, some, you know, players that may be high risk or, or don't want to incur the risk sitting it out. And just, you know, as we mentioned, a season played grudgingly is some weird side effects of that. You could have some weird standings where teams that would have had no shots uh, on any projection system in a uh, normal season all you know, come out better. You know, like, like we see in spring training sometimes, the Cactus League and uh, standings don't match up what you'd expect from the MLE standings just because uh, teams happen to be prepared earlier or better or just happen to be playing better players uh, more often early on or just small sample sizes. And I can see that being the case. So... I can see early on teams trying to play it relatively straight, trying to ramp up pitchers, you know, getting their own games, five innings, six innings, seven innings, building up start after start. Uh, I can see some experimentation maybe with the fifth spot. You know, if you only have a 50 game season, you have occasional off days. I can see teams going with four man rotations. If they don't have a fifth starter, they like, and maybe when they need that fifth day, uh, and they feel like they can do it, maybe trying to do some tandem starting of their own of pitchers who might only be able to get through the lineup once or you know having some kind of uh 
you know, experimentation, um, you know, complete bullpen games more often. Uh, there, there's more room for that. But I think, you know, when the standings start to sharpen and you have like the last uh, two weeks of the season where it's more of a sprint and you have key head-to-head matchups, I can see a situation where uh, they manage games more like playoffs, uh, you know, playoff situations where, um, you know, guy who's maybe on his throw day on the side will pitch a couple innings if needed because that game is important. Or maybe by winning that game, they don't need to win a game down the line. They, they can rest more guys. I think you'll see more of that kind of playoff mentality uh, find its way into games. But I can see like the first couple weeks being about trying to get players into game shape all the way. Uh, before figuring out who yeah, who's limited, who's uh, not going to get there, who's injured, what they have, and then improvising the rest of the way. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Mark Sambor, and Mark is asking, Jim, when compared to the NFL, NBA, or NHL, and with the advancements made in player development and scouting using data and video, why do teams need seven or more minor league levels? Well, that's kind of the tension uh, right now. Some teams want it. Some teams don't feel like they have to. Some teams don't want to pay for uh, what they feel is inefficiencies in the minor league system uh, because they think that they can do a lot of the improvement in labs before putting them in game environments. Or And some teams just like having more rosters, more chances, more you know, uh, opportunities to mine players or lower levels to help players you know, apply that, that lab training early and lower competition levels and and work them up so that's the kind of the tension between uh teams and mentalities and that's why you're seeing uh you know this uh you know not all teams seem to be equally on board when it comes to this uh minorly contraction i think there are a few things other you know that that separate baseball from the other sports as well one is that like the nfl and nba you know they largely use college uh ranks as their um you know minor leagues and you know between conferences and between you know divisions um, you know, um, FBS, FCS, uh, division one, division two, you know, just having these, uh, you know, major conferences, minor conferences, uh, just different levels to where it is kind of like a different, uh, or just, a, a developmental system on different tiers against different levels of competition. And some guys advance because they're playing against lower levels of competition, uh, rise and emerge in that setting and who otherwise would have been buried on other, you know, better teams depth charts. And, uh, you know, that, that takes care of most of the developments. And I think if, uh, major league baseball drafted from college, um, college ranks, you might have only, you know, three, four levels of minor league baseball, depending on, you know, I guess, whether it's junior college or pro college, but if they all came out like of big NCAA programs, junior or senior year, I think that would limit the amount of variety of competition levels baseball would need to have. Whereas, you know, baseball drafts from anywhere from, you know, signs players from 16 years old and internationally to draft guys at 22, 23 in the minors, maybe even older. Uh, If you bring guys over from the international leagues like Cuba, you know, they, they come over at older levels. So you have a wide range of, players coming into the system that all need to acclimate. And so that's why you have this widespread of levels. Probably the closest thing is the NHL, which, you know, when you, when you factor in all the ways players uh, who are drafted can be developed, it's the AHL, ECHL, European transfer leagues, uh, the, the CHL, you know, you have a lot of different ways for players to play before getting to the NHL and, and kind of get into the groove and matriculate up the ladder. So the NHL has that, something similar, just spread out over a lot more countries and, and you don't really 
get a sense of just the the ladder, the way it's clearly spelled out in uh, the United States with baseball. So it's it's a unique product, and you know I think also a product of just how Major League Baseball and, and how baseball has expanded over the country. You know, back when you only had eight teams and uh, each league, and you, there was all you know most of them were concentrated on the other east side of the Mississippi. Uh, you had the you know Pacific Coast League, which was its entire own thing, and you had uh, you know the Midwest League, uh, you know, leagues across the South, um, you know Plain States, uh, barnstorming teams. You just had this whole system that invented itself because baseball wanted to be played in those areas, and Major League Baseball didn't serve them. And as Major League Baseball expanded, and you know the the these uh, leagues became more polished, uh, they became part of a way to feed Major League Baseball teams, and they all just kind of came to organize so it's a a unique way of how baseball spread across the country and i think it's kind of a neat thing uh the way baseball these teams have been able to serve these communities that want to go watch baseball even if they don't you know necessarily command uh double a or triple a type fandom and talent and i i think it's worth preserving that so i think some teams recognize that other teams just either can't afford it don't want to pay for it and so there's a lot of tension, and uh, I think it's going to be unfortunate what happens to minor league baseball, especially it's just a one-two punch of the forces for contraction and, and uh, the uh, coronavirus pandemic just uh, uh, you know making games unfeasible and making their chief source of revenue unfeasible. So it's just uh, it's going to be, I think, uh, tense for a lot of teams and a lot of teams bracing to see if they can come out on the other side of this unscathed. And I hope for uh, the sake of you know, those teams and those employees and players who get the extra chances and uh, fans across the states who might not have other any other way to see professional baseball that as many teams as possible are preserved. Well, Mark, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Doug Wirtz. And Doug is asking, do you think the White Sox could offer to pay off college loans or something like that to get people to sign for $20,000 after the fifth round? Could they offer $1,000 a week for expenses? Something so they might be able to get better prospects? Maybe 20 players who would have been drafted the top seven or eight rounds would sign with the White Sox. Well, uh, ba- yeah, Baseball America has written about this, and it seems like when it comes to like individual perks for drafted players, it they're going to be cracking down on any under-the-table dealings or, or extraneous... Uh, tack-ons to this uh you know the the standard twenty thousand dollar bonus i think there are three ways that teams can uh offer additional perks uh, beyond the standard contract one is uh some contingency bonuses some incentives uh baseball america used the word modest so i don't know what guidelines there are specifically but it seems like they're going to be uh just i guess modest like just not they, they're gonna be low relatively low dollar value amounts uh, and then there's also the uh, scholarships through the uh, uh, continuing education program. Um, you know, there's that uh, that they can use so they can try to, you know, if there's a high school player, they can say, we'll pay for your education either in the off season or whether this doesn't work out, they'll have some way to attend college afterwards. Or if they're being drafted early, go back to college and finish their degrees. There are a couple of those things, but I think when it comes to like individual contracts, and individual things they can offer players to try to lure them over. Uh, it seems like baseball is going to be policing that pretty strictly. So, yeah, the way I'm looking at it, when you have that and you uh, off the board and you have basically the same 
technically or theoretically the same thing players can provide, which is a $20,000 bonus and modest additions uh, that are all from the same toolkit, basically. It seems like it's almost like a collegiate type recruiting um, system that kind of comes to mind for how I picture this going down when it comes to trying to sign these players for $20,000 bonuses and where you have to lure players with like better conditions. Um, you know, perhaps it's a case where you might see teams raising uh, pay for players across the board. Like it doesn't seem like they're, they're uh, limited from saying like, we're going to raise our rookie ball um, salaries from X amount to Y amount, uh, you know, like a 50% or hundred percent raise. We're going to double what we're paying uh, the standard rookie ball fare and, and you know, other teams won't do that. So you should sign with us to get a, uh, a financial head start. Uh, if they want to invest, uh, you know, system wide in their, you know, in, in raising player salaries, there's that they can do. Um, otherwise, it's going to come down to like, I imagine if they try to sign these guys, there's competition. They're going to have to prove that they have some kind of track record and player developments. I think that'll help. I think it'll also be like in a you know a a specific improvement plan for some guys. Like we've looked at your swing. And we think you can do this and we have this guy who will talk to you about this or, you know, kind of like when the White Sox recruit free agents and they have, you know, Don Cooper talk to pitchers uh, either uh, during the process or right afterwards. I can see, um, you know, some of their uh, some of their guys involved in their pitching lab saying, you know, we've watched you release the pitch we've had. You, you've been watching your video and we think that, uh, you know, you're with more pronation or uh, we can you know increase your spin rates or, you know, we think we can unlock two to three miles per hour extra velocity uh, with this training program. Uh, there might be things they can offer pitchers to think that they have their best intentions in mind. And then it might come down to like with, you know, college programs where it comes down to opportunities and, you know, for like, say, a team that's heavy with middle infield talent, they might have a hard time drafting a shortstop they really like. If that shortstop looks the the, the ladder and sees like, well, I'm going to have a hard time climbing, hard time getting reps early to prove myself. So I might go to the team that maybe doesn't have as great a track record of producing guys, like they're not the Cardinals great or they're not Yankees great, but I can get a lot more reps. I can get all the playing time I need to establish myself and get to the major leagues. You know, it's not necessarily a matter of like competition or playing thinking they can, you know, beat guys in competition, but you can't really beat guys in competition if you don't get playing time to begin with. So I can see that being the case too. So that seems to me, based on how I've you know, read things and listening to Mike Shirley talk and listening to you know, other conversations and, and interviews with other scouting directors, seem like it's going to be kind of collegiate in how they go about this. And uh, I don't know if you have any other insights in this and how you've been interpreting it when it comes to the your draft following, but... Uh, it's going to be unique for a year, I think, at the very least. And, uh, you know, I'm going to be writing up every pick as it happens, uh, you know, one through five, uh, Wednesday and Thursday. And then afterwards, I have no idea how it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's going to be I'm prepared for anything. And uh, just the whether it's just like a slow trickle players coming in or an onslaught, I really don't know what to expect. No, you, you raise good points, Jim. And I, this has been something I've been asking Everyone. We just heard Keenan Lamb call it. It's going to be the wild, wild west. Jim Callis, who's been covering the draft for years, doesn't know how this is going to work out. You know, the one idea that I have is, could it be geographical? Would the White Sox sign more players from college out of the North Carolina schools? Because they're set up shop in Kannapolis and Winston-Salem and Charlotte. 
you can live at home. Exactly. You can live at home. Continue to work out at home. Here's your $20,000. You're probably going to start in Kannapolis in 2021. You will need to get to Glendale for spring training. And that could be the other thing, too. Do the White Sox primarily sign guys out of Southern California and Arizona because the spring training facility uh, is nearby this this is just an idea. I don't know if it will come to fruition for the White Sox. And I don't know how these conversations are going to go, but you, you do bring up a good point, Jim. Like, if you're the Tampa Bay Rays and you're known for your player development, you probably are going to do better than a lot of the other teams when signed for $20,000. But you could have a team like... The New York Yankees calling. And if the Yankees are going to give you $20,000 and the White Sox are going to give me $20,000, well, I may just go sign with the Yankees just to say I got signed by the New York Yankees. Okay? So yeah. some teams are going to do really well in this and they're going to they're going to get top of the top of the talent pool and other teams won't. Or they may not even participate. I, I'm not even sold if Oakland's going to participate in this at all. They just may make yeah. their five draft picks and be done. Um, but for the White Sox, I, I think the strategy is there is no limit. So you might as well try to sign as many as you possibly can to the full 20000 Because I do know that not everyone is going to get the full $20,000 offered to them. You know, you know what this reminds me of. Have you ever played uh, NCAA football games when they existed for absolutely? Um, you know, the EA Sports. It reminds me of the recruiting process in Dynasty mode, where you're trying to recruit these players, and in you know these players, your, your school has grades based on program uh, prestige and coaching stability and proximity to home yep. and uh, academic records and everything like that. And the players have different priorities and you try to match them up and you try to out recruit other schools who might be stronger in one area and weaker than others. And it reminds me of that almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you know, your, your, your uh, argument was like trying to get the guys who rate proximity to home as their biggest priority. Yeah. I mean, North Carolina does have some good schools, when it comes to baseball. So I, I think there you could get some. But, I mean, how would you rank the White Sox as far as, like, player development and facilities and how well they treat their minor leaguers? Well, I think the one thing that might be in their favor is they've done well so far by their minor league players and by their uh full-time employees and their scouting staff and everything like that. And they haven't gone as far as teams like the Phillies and the Padres and others that have guaranteed pay through their, for their minor leaguers through the whole season, but they've been, you know, good so far. They haven't threatened cuts. They haven't, you know, ended, uh, you know, they haven't put anybody on furlough or done any uh, staff reductions or pay reductions. They've been uh, paying people whole so far. So if you have uh, a scouting staff who the White Sox have not laid off or threatened to lay off or, or cut pay to, and they're talking to these players, they might be good advocates for um, just how, yeah, I guess, responsible the organization is and how they try to do right by their employees. And that might be something like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm reading right now Lords of the Realm, uh, mm-hmm. the uh, the seminal John Hellyar book uh, that talks about uh, just the history of 
uh, the, the labor battle uh, between Major League Baseball and, and how the MLBPA came to be and the battles they fought. And it kind of reminds me of the old system of, uh, you know, the where teams did well, like it was a patriarchal uh, ownership structure where, um, you know, the reserve clauses in and players had to stay with the team for as long as they played baseball. But some teams were better, others at doing well by their players and treating them right and helping them out. And that could be the case too, where if you have these scouts who have been, you know, the White Sox have a uh, bigger scouting department than a lot of teams. And if they're paying all those scouts and the scouts feel uh, appreciated and treated well, that that may be reflected in the way they talk to these players, that they're the ones you know who have been in contact with the players and coaches. You know, that might be one way to sell them uh, in a way that other teams can't quite, uh, uh, you know, they, they can't do that sales pitch the way the White Sox can. It's just, I don't know how much time that Mike Shirley is going to have. I mean, that's going to be a fascinating question that I hope that he has an opportunity to answer is that when the the smoke clears... And we know who the White Sox signed after the draft. Like, what was your strategy heading into this? Like, what was your sales pitch? And and how did you try to convince that the White Sox were a better fit for this player? Because it, it would be a good learning experience. And again, this is going to be very new to everyone. And we'll see on how it all shakes out. I, I do have faith that the White Sox will do well. I do. I don't think they're going to get like the top of the talent pool, but I do think they're going to be signing a a bunch of college players for $20,000 to have in their farm system. And I do think they'll do well in that regard where some teams I just don't think are going to participate. Yeah, it kind of feels like a July 2 a little bit. A little bit, yeah. Some teams just have some uh, natural advantages because of uh, just – being there and having done the job well before and the White Sox are, you know, might be a little bit behind, but yeah, like I think they'll do, you know, they'll do well in the sense that, you know, it's not going to be for lack of effort or investment. However, it shapes out. <laughs> it just might be for lack of just being able to, to close the deal or sell, uh, you know, sell guys on the program when uh, you don't have any financial edge to offer. But uh, when it comes to um, efforts and investment and quantity, I think they'll be right there. Well, Doug, thank you so much for your question. And again, this is going to be something we'll be covering uh, for the next couple of weeks after the Major League Baseball draft on Thursday. But that will do it for this edition of the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for P.O. Sox. If you have a question or topic for a future episode of the Sox Machine Podcast, again, follow us on Twitter. We are at Sox Machine. And you can also help support us as well at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. There's going to be a ton of content coming at your guys' way this week, again, with the Major League Baseball draft. And a lot of this content is in large thanks to your guys' support. So as always, thank you guys so much. Uh, for supporting mm-hmm. us on SoxMachine.com. And we hope that you enjoy uh, all the content that's coming uh, this week as far as the draft draft week. I know that we're going to be working overtime, Jim, uh, this week. And it's, it's, it's kind of weird saying this is the first <laughs> official event for Major League Baseball in 2020. Yeah, you talking me exactly. right now. Exactly. I'll be drinking a lot of tea on Monday and Tuesday uh, to be ready. Like Rich Eisen, the sports editor commercial, just... Uh... Needing, needing the uh, breaks between rounds, getting uh, getting the spit bucket out, <laughs> the tea with the with the pinky finger extended. Got to be classy. Yep. Got to be classy. 
Uh, but no, I, I look forward to that as we'll have the, the draft shows that will be streaming on Wednesday and also on Thursday to cover the White Sox second, third, fourth, and fifth round picks live with you guys as well, watching the draft unfold, but with a White Sox angle to kind of give us uh, as far as some insight on who the White Sox could select before they make their pick and our instant reactions after they do make those picks as the, the draft picks go a lot quicker on Thursday compared to the first round on Wednesday. But again, that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you just discovered the show and you haven't subscribed, you can subscribe in a number of ways. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and audioboom.com slash Sox Machine. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.